Indian Summer Festival's podcast series was recorded at Tiffin Talks, our lunchtime idea series featuring a diverse group of thinkers, artists, and innovators. Tiffin Talks gathers people to share ideas and a meal together, turning strangers into friends. I'm Suresh Rao, Artistic Director and Co-Founder of the Indian Summer Festival, and we're glad to share this talk with you. Tiffin Talks at ISF 2018 was supported by Van City. Special thanks to our major partners, Simon Fraser University, Langara College and Creative BC, and our media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio. Our funders, Government of Canada, City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, British Columbia Arts Council and Business for the Arts. This episode is titled Fake News, Lies and Bullshit. Moderated by Peter Klein, director of the Global Reporting Center, this amazing group of journalists discusses the future of truth and journalism in an era of manufactured information. Featuring Dion Buncha, Jagdish Mann and Wamish Hamilton. Thank you so much um, and uh, welcome everyone. We're, we're, we're excited to, uh, to talk about fake news, um, lies and, and BS. So I will, um, I'm, we're, we're missing one of our speakers who will be here just in just a moment. So I'll introduce the other two first. And, and uh, if, if Wamish is not here in time, we'll, we'll just jump into things and, and add him afterwards. Is this working? Can I, can I use this? Okay. I'll move on to this. Um, so very briefly, um, uh, to, at the end here, uh, Dion Buncha is a journalist um, originally from Mumbai. Uh, and I've had the pleasure of actually being with her in Mumbai and, and, uh, and, and having her show me the town a little bit. Um, she's the author of the acclaimed nonfiction book, Scarred Experiments of Violence in, in Gujarat. Um, she's reported extensively on human rights, um, environmental issues, and social justice for a number of, of, of major media organizations, both in India and, and elsewhere, including Frontline Magazine and the Times of India. Um, she was a Knight International Journalism Fellow at Stanford University, and uh, she's also a collaborator of the Global Reporting Center. Hi. Just in time, I'll introduce Wamish. <laughs> Hi, Wamish. Um, Wamish Hamilton is a longtime journalist uh, currently working at The Discourse, reporting on reconciliation, among other, other um, issues. Um, he has this quote that I, that I just love. Um, As a reporter who is indigenous, my stories have context others don't. I give voice to indigenous, indigenous communities living with the impact of policies conceived far away. And that's something we'll, we'll be touching on in, in this discussion. He's previously worked in Port Alberni um, for many years before coming to UBC to get his master's in journalism. And I had the pleasure of uh, being with him at, at UBC Journalism. Um, he's a member of the Hupachasat First Nation of Vancouver Island. Um, and uh, uh, Jagdish Mann is a reporter in Vancouver who regularly writes for uh, the Georgia Strait as well as Vancouver Sun, the province, Globe and Mail, uh, contributes to the CBC, the National Post, and many others. Uh, he's um, a true independent journalist in, in the thriving gig economy in this town. Uh, he's also the, sun, the founder of Sunflower Media, a boutique ad agency that focuses on multiculturalism and digital marketing. So we're going to hopefully touch on everyone's backgrounds here as we, as we launch into this conversation. Uh, before we start talking about fake news, I thought maybe it's worth defining what fake news is. Um, and really, there's a number of different ways the term fake news um, is utilized. There's, there's the fake news that's manufactured by, whether it's you know Russia cr uh, creating um, disinformation about the, the US campaign, or it's people like Alex Jones or other, other um, marketing people essentially using fake news to get clickbait and, and, and simply just make money. Uh, but then, of course, there's the, the, the charges of fake news against people like us, against journalists calling us fake news, calling us the enemy of the people. Uh, Donald Trump, famous, most famous perhaps uh, these days, but there's lots of other leaders who have currently and, and in the past used that, uh, that charge against journalists. Um, interestingly, uh, I worked at 60 Minutes for many years, and one of my colleagues there, Leslie Stahl, uh, who's interviewed Donald Trump, had a conversation with him um, in the last couple years, and she, he revealed to her, and she's revealed this publicly now, that uh, she said to him, why do you keep saying the journalists are fake news? You know we're not fake news. And he said, well, I do that because I want to undermine your credibility so that when you have negative stuff about me, people don't believe you. Um, and that's really the sort of MO of, of propagating fake news. So we're going to discuss both. But I want to start with something very specific, um, something that's been going on right now in India. This is Indian summer, after all. I thought we'd start with a, with a specific issue going on in, in India. Um, 
last week there was a, a lynching, the fifth um, lynching in recent in, in the recent uh, couple months, of um, of someone who uh, an innocent person who uh, was accused of, of kidnapping. Um, I see Ken Klosky here, who's a lawyer who's worked with with wrongfully convicted people. Um, fortunately. Are wrongfully convicted people aren't lynched here. Uh, it's terrible that they may spend uh, years or, or their life in jail. But in India, there's been this rash of lynchings, um, basically vigilante justice. Um, Maharashtra is, is, is the site of the most recent one. And it came out of fake news and rumors. Um, WhatsApp has, has admitted that they've had a, a role in propagating these rumors that certain people have been behind uh, kidnappings of children and that's led to the, the, this sort of mob mentality. Um, the app has, uh, WhatsApp has put a big prominent ad just this week in the major newspapers in India, um, apologizing and saying they want to really do something to combat this. Um, WhatsApp has more than 200 million users in India, um, and they've created some new features to combat fake news, specifically one in India, uh, it's only in India, that shows um, users when a message has been forwarded um, by someone other than the composer of that message, which would help combat fake news. So I have a question, uh, maybe I'll, I'm gonna put it to Dion first, um, may, maybe not necessarily about this particular case, uh, I'm not sure how much you know about it, but um, it, more importantly, what is it about India, um, whether it's the economy or the culture or, or the, the connectivity, that, that would make a company like WhatsApp focus so much on the situation and the rumors and the, the, the threat of rumors in a place like India. Is there something special about India that, that makes it particularly susceptible to fake news? Um, and so we can leave the political sure. stuff for a moment. Well, it is political. <laughs> right. Everything is political. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't leave it out. Um, sorry. Is, is it not working? Yeah. I think it's good. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, great. So, um, you know, uh, I think. Um, well, what's it about India? First of all, um, India has one of the biggest users of WhatsApp. Like, unlike people in the other countries who may use Twitter or Facebook more, most people in India are on their mobile phones all the time and uh, using WhatsApp a lot more than people. Like, there are 200 million users of WhatsApp world in India alone, and I think 1.5 billion worldwide or something like that. And um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a cultural thing. Like, people are on all kinds of WhatsApp groups. You know, I have my parents constantly sending me videos and photo photographs and all kinds of stuff. So it's very widely used because, you know, in India, there are a lot of close social ties. So people are part of many different WhatsApp groups, and people are constantly forwarding stuff to each other. So that's one aspect of it. But um, you know, in the whole discussion about what's happening with the lynching, I think we're making a mistake of blaming the tool rather than the messenger. So you know, uh, there's nothing new about fake news. Like it's just, you know, it's been part of history. It's been part of the history of the press. You know, I was just listening to a podcast last week that said that you know, in journalists. In, like journalists in the early uh, 19th century, 20th century would actually encourage fake news. They thought it embellished the story and made it more interesting. So <laughs> this was an NPR podcast. You can find it online. And so, uh, you know, they've obviously, and in India, fake news has been used uh, by the Hindu right wing to spread uh, rumor and instigate violence. Uh, this is a very deliberate effort by the Hindu right wing. They actually train, you know, their their political workers in the art of engineering violence, and rumor uh, plays a very important part in that. So, uh, you know, in the past it was related the rumor spread in a village, but now, you know, because of social media, the village is way bigger. And so the speed at which the rumor spreads and the distance that it spreads has just accelerated. And so this is what we're seeing. And I mean, you have to also see it in the current political climate that exists. That's why I'm saying, I'm sorry, I can't no, no, divorce it <laughs> from politics. So, <laughs> you know, we have an extremist Hindu right-wing party in power uh, whose... Um, ideology is very inspired by 
you know, the European fascists, Hitler, and they are organized in a similar way, in a very organized way. They have vigilante groups who are out there, uh, you know, uh, instigating violence whenever they need to. And so these lyn this particular lynching related to this child ab abduction video has, is recent, but there have been lynching happening for like at least the last three years, ever since the beef ban was instituted by them, and they actually have vigilante groups who are out there spreading rumor and instigating the killing of people. There have been people uh, who've been killed for suspecting to have eaten meat, you know, so, um, and there have been more than 50 or 100 of these lynchings over the last three or four years. So there's a deliberate effort to spread of fear, suspicion, and hate um, that has really kind of accelerated over the past few years. And, you know, these groups have used it to very good effect. And normally social media is used to really good effect by the people who want to spread trouble. Like I was just reading yesterday that um, uh, the, the, uh, the white nationalists in the U.S. are the uh, um, largest uh, uh, growing group on Twitter, exceeding like ISIS and stuff like that. So, you know, there's, this is an international trend. It's, it's not related just to India, uh, where a lot of uh, extremist groups are using social media to create trouble. Um, and it's not related just to lynchings. It, it could be anything. Like, it's basically we have a Hindu Taliban ruling India. So tomorrow if they want to, uh, you know, attack, uh, they want to ban the celebration of Christmas, they use the same techniques to do that. They have their groups out there, you know, creating trouble if there's someone celebrating Christmas. If they want to ban the celebration of Valentine's Day, day they'll go to all the universities and, you know, uh, create trouble there. If they want to ban, um, you know, inter-religious marriages, they do the same thing. They, they kidnap those girls uh, who are marrying outside the Hindu faith. So um, just something, just a backgrounder to give you a context of why this is happening. Well, Jagdish, you've, you've written about, um, about rumors and disinformation, fake news, um, around, about Sikh separatists in Canada. Um, all sorts of, of, of pretty, pretty remarkable um, stories have been, have been spread about secret separatism in, in Canada. Maybe you can give us just a little bit of background for anyone who may, may not be totally familiar with um, the Khalistan movement. And, and what are these rumors and where do you think they're coming from? <laughs> I was um, listening to Dion. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah. So I'm listening to Dion and she's talking about very localized events um, of violence, of mob violence in India, uh, which have um, you know, very serious ramifications for people living there. And so that, of course, was you know, it sort of contained within India. So we here as Canadians, we might think to ourselves, so that's terrible that's happening in India, but what is the, um, the impact here on these shores? Information flows globally. And disinformation that originates in India can actually wash up on these shores and cause all kinds of chaos to people here, to Canadian citizens. A perfect example of that was the Khalistan uh, narrative, which took place earlier this year when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau went to visit India. And he was there for about a week, and they had a, a week of wonderful photo opportunities, and he went to the Taj Mahal, he went to the Golden Temple. But some great outfits. <laughs> yeah, some great outfits. And during his entire journey, uh, he was dogged repeatedly by accusations um, hurled from the Indian media about how he was in either cahoots or he was um, blind to um, the Khalistan sympathies within his own cabinet. And in particular, the media was pointed towards uh, Defense Minister Harjit Sajid uh, and also uh, Navdeep Bain's uh, minister from Ontario. Anyways, there was no basis to this. This rumor or this allegation started with uh, an allegation from the political level itself from the um, the prime minister, or I'm sorry, from the premier, or uh, yeah, the the head of state in Punjab state, and then it kind of spread through Indian media, and then it just kind of perpetuated on and on during the entire uh, one week long visit when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was there. But what happened was all of that rumor and innuendo and allegation flowed across the globe, ended up here in Canada, 
literally was splayed across the front pages of newspapers for almost a solid two months. And everybody here was asking ourselves, where are all these rumors and why, where is all this activity coming from? And this idea that there is a revival of Khalistan terror here in Canada suddenly became a question again after about 20 years. Because there hadn't been an actual terror incident involved or tied to that movement in, in two decades. This all started with uh, Indian allegations. Our Canadian media here didn't do a very good job in terms of filtering out the disinformation from the facts. And eventually, the story petered out and died away because it didn't have a factual basis. And so there is an example where about half a million Canadians were kind of you know, were smeared with this allegation of being supporters of or raising funds for a terror movement which itself is non-existent. And it all originated from a, a politician in India getting upset with a Canadian politician and not inviting him for lunch. <laughs> and this is kind of where it all started. So disinformation flows across the globe. It can have what, what is said in China or what is said in India or in Bangladesh can have huge impacts here in Canada. It can affect our political cycle. And a year from now, when, when we go back to the polls again, federally speaking, uh, when, when you know the um, federal election comes up again, this information flow, we're going to be facing this again. It's very likely that these kind of stories will start to reappear in our social media feeds, Twitter feeds, and you know they're going to be written in such a way, and as Peter was alluding to earlier, to make them clickbaitable and very like tantalizing to click through on and to share across our networks. And so, yeah, so the question becomes, how do we guard against that? And I think you know, that's a very big question for the media industry, particularly given its weakening and atrophying state at the moment and the contraction of our newsrooms, which are you know, diminishing and right in front of us. So this is a kind of the challenge we face, as far as I can tell. Um, thanks. So, so uh, well, I, mean, I definitely want to get to, get to uh, what we can do about this as well in, in, in a few minutes. Um, so, Wamish, let me ask you, um, so the fake news, lies, BS is certainly nothing new to indigenous communities in this, in this country. Um, it's not uncommon to today in polite, educated circles for people to say, well, you know, all the all indigenous people all live for free. They don't pay rent or they get free schooling or, I mean, even seemingly innocuous, they're not innocuous, but they're not, you know, they're not, they're not, they're all terrorists who are, you know, going to blow us up um, kind of lies. I'm curious what you, as a journalist who's, who's reported within indigenous communities and on indigenous communities for your whole career, how often do you hit up against this, you know, misconceptions about indigenous people or even outright lies? Every single story. Every single story uh, that I've done about indigenous issues, um, <clears throat> from innocuous ones, uh, to do with culture, education, uh, to more serious ones, such as the banishment and reintegration of indigenous sex offenders from their First Nations, to the First Nations housing issue, to what reconciliation looks like in small towns, most recently. The more serious the issue, uh, the more, uh, the more what I call trolls, swarm. They just swarm like ants, like bees. And you're like an exterminator dealing with trolls with this. And a lot of things that have been said, uh, a lot of things that are written with respect to indigenous people uh, not paying for their education, not paying for their housing, the list just goes on. You can provide absolute certain proof that this doesn't happen, that in fact indigenous people pay taxes, that most indigenous people don't live at home in their First Nations. Uh, more than half of us live off reserve in cities such as this, and when you, in that case, you pay taxes. So you pay into the system that pays for uh, on-reserve uh, program services and regimes. You can show them this till you're blue in the face. You can show absolute definitive proof, and it just doesn't register with a lot of them. And that myth lives. It lives like a zombie in The Walking Dead. You can't kill it. If I, if I can tongue-in-cheek refer to that. Um, most recently, we did a discourse, did a series of stories on the First Nations housing on reserve, and we used the Euclid First Nations as an example. 
and the Ukula First Nation is a new treaty nation in British Columbia that uh, governs itself under terms of treaty, modern-day treaty, that it negotiated with Canada and with British Columbia a decade ago. And ostensibly, they have uh, jurisdiction over their own housing. But there were houses built in the 70s and 80s when the Department of Indian Affairs were, <clears throat> they completely controlled housing on reserve. They governed the system under which houses were built and controlled the system under which houses were built. And these houses weren't homes in any sense of the word. Uh, they weren't built for that kind of a climate. They were built with cheap material. There were, in fact, no building inspections during that period of time, uh, unlike today. Um, these houses are in complete disrepair today. But although you, you could lay out from A to Z, the system was controlled by the Department of Indian Affairs when they were built, it doesn't matter that the myth that people p didn't pay for their housing, number one, when in fact they did, uh, it, pro it, it lives, it just continues to live in the face of fact. And we laid out factually uh, how and why these houses fell into the condition that they were and how the federal government is responsible because it was responsible for that system of housing to in fact repair it and set uh, nations onto self-governance with decent housing. But the myth propagated, the myth lived, and it continues to live in the face of fact. Well, let, let me ask a question, maybe all three of you can answer briefly, because um, I want to get through a few more questions and then obviously we'll, we'll have uh, lunch and you'll have a, a chance to, to have more informal conversation. But yeah, there, there was recently an, an Angus Reid Institute poll uh, just a few weeks ago, um, specifically about um, Indigenous communities in, in Canada and, and non-Indigenous communities, and sort of lack of understanding and lack of connection. I want to get the stats right, but said 40% of people responded, it was a fairly large poll, 40% of people responded, said they've never been to a First Nation reserve, um, and two-thirds of Canadians said they have, they've had virtually no contact with an Indigenous communities in their, in their entire lives. And I wonder if, with respect to um, issues within Indigenous communities, at least part of the problem is just sort of not knowing the other, not meeting people, not knowing other people. And to some extent in India as well, where you have, you know, segregated communities, you have, you know, you have lots of different communities um, that may, may or may not um, meet each other. And, and it's easier, is it easier to demonize you know, the, the, the Muslim communities, the Sikh communities, whatever it might be that might be demonized because people aren't, aren't meeting them. Maybe we can start with, you know, Wamish. What do you think about that? I'm glad you asked that, Peter. And it's, uh, it's an important observation. It's something that's very key and something that we found last summer when I initiated a project that Discourse did in partnership with CBC Indigenous that looked at what reconciliation looks like in small Canadian towns. I grew up in a small Canadian town on Vancouver Island. And the experience, <clears throat> when you see reconciliation today, uh, reconciliation measures and initiatives roll out in the city of Vancouver, in the city of Winnipeg, in the city of Toronto, it is a very different experience for Indigenous people in small towns. I know, because I grew up in a small town. And in a small town, um, it's like there's a dividing line between uh, First Nations and the non-Indigenous community. And people don't cross those lines, socially, politically, economically, uh, they remain in separate silos and the ground in between them is uh, dividing ground. It's not seen as common ground yet. And they don't know each other. And when you know each other, when you begin to know each other, when you begin to cross paths, uh, when you get to know each other, you get familiar with each other and you can start to ask each other difficult questions about your culture, about your economics, about your politics. I know that because I became friends with non-Indigenous people here in the Lower Mainland, and as we got to know one another, the conversation actually turned to reconciliation. And we began to ask each other difficult questions. But we could do that without insulting one another and without picking a fight, because we were familiar. And the ground we were on was not div dividing ground, it was common ground. But in these small places, people didn't know each other. It is especially prevalent in uh, small towns not just in British Columbia, but as we were to find in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, in Manitoba, in Ontario, it, that exists in each of those provinces, especially in small places. People don't mix. 
Can I? Um, yeah. I mean, what about in, in in diaspora communities? Yeah, this is actually yeah, an interesting. I was actually talking about this just yesterday. Um, I grew up in a small town as well. Um, I was um, I grew up in Kamloops, and uh, my grandparents came to this country um, the second time around. It's kind of a weird story, but they landed up here in the 50s, and at that time they lived in a very small community, uh, Lewis Creek, which was north of Kamloops and just south of Barrier, and uh, they lived um, within like walking distance to the the lumber mill because my grandfather worked in the mill industry, and um, in his immediate proximity was a large number of indigenous and First Nations people. And uh, I recall the stories that they used to tell me were, you know, they had a very open and almost like a fraternal type of relationship with um, indigenous people when they first arrived, even though my grandfather never spoke a, a word of English most of his life. In fact, he never spoke English. And uh, neither did my grandmother really, but, but they had this sort of free-flowing kind of open exchange relationship. You know, they would probably trade for things. They would, you know, they would, uh, obviously, you see each other regularly, and they was, um, and they would even spend time together. Um, I know my grandfather certainly did. And um, over time, like about 10, 15 years on, as you know, my dad and his brothers grew up. They eventually moved, I guess, further into a Kamloops suburb uh, where there wasn't as much contact with, uh, in, I can look the local indigenous population. And what we uh, sort of experienced growing up, I guess, during my time was that. Even though there was um, some, I guess, contact between indigenous and non-indigenous uh, non within our high schools and within our, our public school system, really the reality was there was that sort of invisible line which existed um, between the reservation on one half of Kamloops and the other half of Kamloops, which was not reservation. And uh, so it feels like there was a period of time, once upon a time, oddly enough, when my grandparents didn't speak any English and they were completely coming to a foreign country. And when there was a bit of a relationship, that relationship receded as their proximity to uh, local indigenous people um, widened. And here we are again back today as we're talking about reconciliation. And I think probably one of the most important things is going to be able to actually have like, a relationship. Like to actually have contact, actually know somebody who's, or know people who are not like us in order to kind of start that reconciliation process. Something which, you know, I guess, I guess I'm sort of learning from my grandparents' experience from 70 years ago. Dion, yeah, what about in India? I mean, is that, is, is, the, is the sort of, is one of the conditions that make fake news uh, possible and, 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 and popular, the fact that people don't necessarily know the people that the fake news is about, or is that not, a, not an issue in India? In India, we all are so close, in right. such close proximity to each other that, like, in a village, everyone, like, there are different sections because, you know, it's a very caste-ridden society, so obviously the, you know, uh, different, the lower caste live in a different uh, part of the village than the upper caste. And so there is the feeling of that's the other. And, but, you know, it's not like you never see those people. They are laborers, they're, you know, they're the laborers of the upper caste or whatever. So there is a lot of intermingling, um, definitely. Um, it's just, um, like I said, there's a different atmosphere that has been created over the years of fear, of uh, uh, distrust of the other. Um, that is kind of has been built like when I was a child growing up I we celebrated all festivals we celebrated with Eid with our neighbors we celebrated Christmas you know we celebrated Diwali like you know India is a very secular country and because we all there's so many people living in such close proximity to each other we all become part of each other's lives Unfortunately, there's a very deliberate move to change that, and that's the sad part of well, so, what's So happening. then let me ask you about Gujarat, because you, of course, you, you wrote the book on it. Um, this was a decade and a half ago, more, um, really before social media, before some of the things we're talking about now that has allowed rumors and lies and BS to spread as, as readily as they do. Um, what role did, or if any, did, did disinformation, did fake news, um, have to do with both the demonization of the Muslim community and the and the violence. So um, there's all like I said, this information is part of the whole strategy of uh, 
creating violence. And so during the Guj Gujarat violence, when there was a train that was burned down, no one still knows the exact reason why, and uh, the Hindu extremists gave a call for violence the next day, revenge killings. Uh, the main, the biggest Gujarati newspapers had headlines that said, blood for blood, and with blood dripping down the headlines. <laughs> so uh, it's not just social media. Like I said, we can't blame the tool. It's the messenger, right? So there are different ways in which fake news or is spread or disinformation is spread. And like the Indian media, certain sections of the Indian media are, are as much as at fault as any kind of other channel of communication. Why, why is that? Because they are so aligned to the most powerful force, uh, political or economic forces. So, you know, in, in India recently, uh, yeah. just recent, I think a couple, couple days ago, well, it's a couple weeks ago, the Indian government imposed a rule that any any journalist who spreads fake news will lose accreditation. Mm -hmm. And almost immediately, Prime Minister Modi said, no, 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 that we're rescinding that. So maybe you can explain what happened there and why that happened. So um, again, like, you know, uh, the whole uh, space is so contested because uh, uh, I, I think, like, they did this in, in a way to show that they're doing something, but realize that I don't know exactly. I mean, they met with a lot of opposition because people felt that there's going to be even more surveillance and they're going to use this against people who are dissenting voices. Right, because it's, I mean, yeah. it's the accredited journalists. They're not the ones necessarily yeah, exactly. who are spreading the fake news, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And it, and and so it felt a bit like Donald Trumpy kind exactly. of like enemy of the people yeah, sort kind of, of rhetoric. Thing, yeah, and I mean, the people who spread the most, the BJP has their own social media cell. with a whole, They've employed a huge number of people to spread fake news, to troll people on the internet. Um, and that's been well documented in a book written by a former troll uh, called I Am a Troll. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, there's a, uh, you know, it's a very organized, uh, I mean, there's some of it is obviously chaotic, the way you can't control where it spreads, but there's a very deliberate effort to spread, to put these things out in, on social media. And I mean, I think that's where, you know, leaders like Modi and Trump uh, feel they have the upper hand now because they don't have to rely on mainstream media to get their story out. They have a direct connection with their followers. Um, and they don't, so th like, uh, I think Trump and even Modi have stopped uh, attending, uh, um, uh, holding press yeah, conferences holding press and conference. uh, answering any questions from the media. They just give out what they want people to hear. I mean, in, in a strange way, and I, I never thought I would say these words, Sarah Palin was visionary <laughs> in a way. Um, <laughs> because, because, you know, t 10 years ago, um, yeah. or whenever she was, I've, I've erased my memory, but you know, Sarah Palin <laughs> talked about the, the, la the lamestream media yeah. and how we have to go around the filter of the lamestream yeah. media. And she was one of the first people really to talk about how and it was because the technology was just sort of its right. infancy allowing yeah. the, the journalists to do that. And certainly, that, I think that's only yeah. gotten, gotten uh, yeah. stronger. I want to I just ask two, two last questions, and then I think we're going to have, have lunch. But um, just this pat, you, you mentioned an NPR story. Um, I'm going to keep things grounded in Canada. So I'm going to mention a CBC um, story that ran this, this past Sunday this, on the Sunday edition. Um, they were talking about this whole issue of fake news. Some of you may have heard this episode. I think it was a rerun. But, um, but they have this historian, Joe Fox, who um, argued in defense of rumors, which I thought was kind of an interesting argument. She's, I think she's a psychologist or a social psychologist. And was talking about how, you know, of course, rumors can be very destabilizing. Fake news can be destabilizing. But there's, there's a, a psychological role that, that rumors and fake news play in society. Um, public opinion polls only really measure what people are willing to admit to. This is one of the reasons the US election was such a surprise, because public opinion polls showed that Hillary Clinton was going to win by a landslide, because people didn't want to admit they were going to vote for Trump. So you know, what's in their hearts isn't necessarily what they're saying in their, in, to, to, to pollsters. But what rumors can do is, is sort of help get some of that information out, get some of what people really believe. Um, whether it's, you know, and it may be a 
racist um, what people really believe, and but at least this way it's out there. Um, it can also, she gave the example of in, during World War II, uh, people would find it unpatriotic to admit that they were concerned about air raids, but they can say to their, their neighbor, have you heard a rumor that we're about to be bombed? You know, um, Do you think that's true? And, and they can sort of have the open these conversations without necessarily stating that they're concerned, but just kind of throwing out this, this idea that, that opens a, a, a conversation and can alleviate stress and tension. So I'm curious, you know, not to sort of spin this in a way, but I mean, is to some extent, are we stuck with rumors and, and maybe it's kind of evil cousin fake news in a way because we kind of need that as, as humans. Do you think there's any, any truth to that, any of you? Can I? Yeah, please. Uh, I, would, um, like I would disagree with her on a couple of reasons. Uh, I'll give a couple of specific examples. In, in CBC as well, uh, when the recent, um, in Toronto, there was the incel uh, attack, when the driver uh, of the van went through, I think about 20 passengers, mm -hmm. he killed about 20 people on the road, and there was all sorts of rumors uh, including some started by a CBC reporter in, in specific, uh, Natasha Fateh, uh, when she tweeted out saying that the, the driver of the van looked angry, Middle Eastern, and uh, something empty-eyed or something like that. And the result was, as soon as she tweeted it, there's a CBC brand, there's her face, there's the credibility, <coughs> and um, within seconds it gets picked up by all sorts of right-wing media. It gets picked up by Fox News eventually, they tweeted um, all kinds of right-wing conspiracy, Infowars, et cetera, et cetera. The entire right, um, that whole side picks it up and sort of pushes that whole jihadi sort of uh, storyline, saying that this must be a jihadi attack. It turned out it wasn't, it wasn't even close to that. It was something completely different. But that being said, for, you know, for a good like 24 hours or whatever, for a couple of days at least, there was a, a little bit of a beat down on Muslims in this country. And, um, and that Fox News tweet remained online until uh, the Prime Minister's um, press secretary actually had to write a letter complaining to Fox News to take it down. And then eventually they, you know, they managed to take it down. So there, there, there's one example. Um, I, there was another example. But I mean, it doesn't, but I mean, I could argue that, that that example proves the point, which is that there is, there is an underlying nervousness by and, and, and racism uh, in certain se sectors of society, let's just say in Canada for now, with this example, that thinks, oh, Muslims equal terrorism, and something happened that seems terroristic and must be a Muslim. Rather, you know, it, 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 it brings it out into the public, that, that prejudice and that and that. Uh, it does. Fear. No, you're right. It does. And But that being said, if I was just purely from a data scientist point of view, and if I really wanted to know what people thought, I wouldn't need to have rumors. I would just need to actually have access to <laughs> Google's aggregate data right. in terms of what they're That's searching true. for. There is a, a fantastic book called Everybody Lies. I don't know if anyone here has read it. I totally recommend it. But it tells you that all the writings, or not writings, but all the, um, all the congressional districts that flipped uh, from Obama to becoming Trump voting in 2016 were all the same congressional districts in which there was a greater propensity to search for uh, racial jokes after Obama became the president in 2008. There was indicators that those were the counties or those are the, the districts that were going to become um, the most susceptible to like this sort of like type of, um, you know, like whatever, like racially oriented type of campaign. Um, so I do have the access to, or right. we have access to data from, from, from search engines, which truly do reveal what's in our minds and in our, in our hearts, as opposed to uh, having to us having yeah. for us to voice it out, I guess. That would that'd be my only yeah. argument against that, so. Any other thoughts on that? Just a couple of things. I would argue that um, they're needed insofar as they're around to be fact-checked. Uh, you need them to verify the truth. You need them to fact-check the truth. You need them to dispel them. And uh, the second thing I would add was that uh, there's a difference between fake news and utter hate. I, the two aren't mutually exclusive. That being said, what I see by and large with indigenous stories, certainly the ones I've written, even the most recent ones, are uh, <clears throat> hatred. It's hate. It's so, thus far, uh, the experience I've had with this is that it's not organized fake news. It's uh, sort of 
amateur league fake news mm. by amateur trolls. But I loathe the day, I cringe at the day that that ever becomes organized. Right. Well, you know, CBC has banned co comments on, on stories regarding indigenous people because there's, there's this flood wave. of, of, of yeah. wave of hate and trolls and, and uh, uh, I mean, it, it really has. And so that's part of, part of the, the you know, I don't know if that would be called fake news. Uh, because, as you say, it's not necessarily organized. But what's what is interesting is that this current climate that we're in, and certainly in in uh, I would say in the United States and Canada, I don't know the Indian uh, social media landscape well enough to know if it's if it's been a change there. But there's definitely been a door open for that level of 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 hate and anger, and part of it is propagated by fake news. I you know when I whenever whenever I write a column for Globe and Mail or elsewhere, uh, particularly that's political, I am inundated by hate. And my, my parents were Holocaust survivors. You know, my history and my background is, is fairly well known. Um, so there's just this wave of anti-Semitic hate that, that I've never in my life, in my 25 years as a journalist, never experienced that since the last, except in the last two years. Um, and I think that has opened up partly because of the demonization of journalists. So I guess that, that's kind of a transition to my, my last question to all three of you before we have lunch, is what can we do? I mean, we're journalists, right? We're we have to take some responsibility here. Um, in the, the, the stats that I have are, are, are US-based, um, so I don't know exactly how they apply in Canada. But in the United States, journalists have about a 35% approval rating, um, which is far lower than Donald Trump. So just for just context, 10% uh, below Donald Trump. So journalists are extremely unpopular, and they, and they, they have been unpopular for, for quite some time. Uh, you know, so I, I think about like, you know, if I don't want my kids to eat ice cream, I could say the most horrific things about ice cream, but they're still going to like ice cream, right? So ice cream is doing a good job being ice cream. We're, we're not ice cream. <laughs> Somehow we're not as palatable as ice cream because the, the, the demonization of us is successful. Um, so what can we do to earn back the trust of the public and to some extent combat this, this demonization of journalists as fake news? Um, by the people who are tr trying to take advantage of it, whether it's Modi or it's Erdogan or it's Trump or whoever it might be. I mean, maybe we could, Wamish, well, you, you work for an organization that's trying to change how journalism is being done. Maybe you could talk about discourses, philosophy, and, and, and what you guys are trying to do to, to address that issue. Let's see, I can, um, <clears throat> if I can draw on an example of a story I did a couple of years, a series of stories I did a couple of years ago. Um, when I got out of university, I, there were Treaty First Nations that were becoming uh, self-governing First Nations out from under the Indian Act. But I noticed that they had developed constitutions, and in those constitutions, they were adopting the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which contains press freedom. So I began to ask, what does press freedom look like in these new democracies, in these new uh, nations? And I was the first reporter to ask that. What does it look like? How, how do you measure it? Uh, how does it work? So I, I got into uh, the oldest treaty First Nation, the Nishka First Nation, to look at how they were addressing freedom of the press. And uh, there wasn't an organized uh, hate campaign about it because essentially you're dealing with a nation that was just adopting uh, press freedom but there was no free press to exercise it uh, there or in, other, in any other treaty nation for that matter. Um, what discourse allowed me to do when I did that series was to look at it in depth and to actually go there and to be in and amongst uh, uh, the people that were affected by it and uh, by the new regime that was wrestling with how to deal with this. And. Uh, <clears throat> It was Discourse's uh, mission to provide depth and context and perspective and uh, voice to the voiceless that enabled me to dig into this series and to be able to look at what this looks like. And it was significant to me. And I thought it was a significant story to, series of stories to do because there are 65 other First Nations in the treaty queue waiting to uh, hatch modern day treaties of their own that are each going to be adopting the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as part of their constitutions. This will be something bigger to deal with, I thought. 
and doing that enabled me to, to do it. But that didn't stop the haters from coming online. If I could just, before, while I have this thought, uh, I'd like to express it. Most of the trolls that I've dealt with, most of the, the hatred, the vitriol that I've dealt with, uh, by and large, has been from men. I've dealt with the odd lady who was a hater, but by and large, it's been from men. Caucasian men, for that matter. Uh, it could be an innocuous story about what happened to Clayton Bushy last year. It could be a story about First Nations housing. It could be about any story, and it, this manages to, uh, the, the trolls manage to infest these things. But if I could impart this, just sticking to being a journalist. I know it sounds almost too simple, but just doing what I do and sticking to what I do, sticking to what discourse does, and that's just good journalism. Good, deep, depth, context, fact check, rigor, journalism will work every time out. And call me uh, uh, a dreamer or naive, but I think in the end that is going to win out. Mostly because I think it is at this point, particular point in time, where reconciliation with Indigenous people is concerned, that is what is most needed, at least in my view. Uh, others may argue differently, and I, I respect that. But that is what's most important. That's what's most needed uh, to be able to, for people to understand. Yes, the haters are going to argue, and they're always going to be there. But I have to think that uh, in the end, they're going to be like. They're going to be like uh, when I was a kid. I used to read about Japanese soldiers that were found 20 years or 30 years after the war was over on these remote South Pacific islands. They were still in war mode. They didn't know the war was over, and they were still waiting for a fight. But it was long over. And they were in the minority, in such a small minority. Call me a hoper or a dreamer, but I think ultimately that is what is going to happen. I mean, part of it is, is uh, you know, something we say to our students at, at the journalism school is like, just get it right. And, and because when you get it wrong, the cost, especially these days, is so high. Nice. You know, every time the media is sort of as a, as a monolith and even just an individual journalist gets a story wrong, um, it has, it undermines the credibility. You know, if you look at that, that well, probably many of you, all of you have seen that, that picture of the little girl crying uh, who supposedly was taken away from her mother at the border um, that was used on the cover of Time magazine. Turned out that little girl, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of other kids who were taken away from their, their families, uh, but that little girl was not. And, of course, you can only imagine getting a story like that wrong that's so high profile. <clears throat> Um, is the kind of thing that the right and, and the, you know, the defenders of Trump's uh, immigration policy latch on to and say, look, the, the, the media is lying about this stuff. Um, so this is not this, Peter, yeah. We wouldn't even know these things were lies if journalists, journalists didn't call them out. Right. That's true. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's true. So, you know, we have really great fact-checking websites and great journalists out there calling out the lies. And, so and there's been a whole kind of ecosystem that. of fact-checking yeah. that's grown up, yeah. grown out of the last yeah. couple of years. Uh, whether it's algorithms or, right. or individual organizations. I, I would say, actually, yeah. just a certain extension of uh, Wamishi's comment, uh, you know, getting it right, including those kind of narratives that he's talking about in the mainstream, which, you know, for the longest time have been absent until, you know, he's working with discourse and maybe there are is some sort of token coverage here and there, but I probably, I think there's probably not enough of it. And that also includes um, diversifying newsrooms, um, getting more diverse narratives into the um, quote, air quote, mainstream. Uh, but again, now that faces a, a problem on the other side, the structural problem of the, the actual ongoing contraction of the entire media industry, the ongoing um, upheaval of the entire media model. So you've uh, actually called it the dystopic future of the media industry. <laughs> absolutely dystopic. And, uh, but, yeah, and there is greater dystopia that I fear. Um, I don't know if I want to get into all that right now. I mean. I guess I, I guess I can. I mean, because the dystopia really, we can get even far more dystopic because we can get to an era of really fake news where we can completely manufacture audio clips, we can completely manufacture and synthesize video clips. Uh, there's a recent new um, release by Adobe uh, software of Adobe Audition, where literally you just type down um, 
Peter Klein is a, a monster, and it literally will voice that right. into your in your voice, and it'll sound like he just delivered this clip. And now imagine spreading that online. I actually saw a clip of, of Obama yeah. saying the most horrific, vile things about Donald about Trump. Trump. Yeah. That was completely manufactured, and it looked so real. So the future is could be far more dystopic, could be far more bleak. Um, I'm not sure. It depends on how much faster the technology gallops ahead of our ability as journalists to cover and um, you know spread real news, if you want to call it that. Um, but anyways, if, if there's any little bit of hope, I think you know, with every year 300,000 new immigrants come into this country, let's say the media model sustains itself, let's say the newspaper world, you know, it all kind of equilibrates. You know, you can actually provide narratives for this world where um, you know, you're providing real reporting from the ground, locally speaking, and you are winning over this new sort of group of people coming year after year. And yeah, you can sort of over time become, um, I guess, more credible, if you want to call it that. But that's just what's one view. Well, maybe I'll, I'll give uh, Dion the last word. I mean, we're, we're here we are at Indian Summer. Is there a, an Indian political and, and, and uh, media economy landscape uh, aspect to this? I mean, what... You, you have a political system there that um, thrives in this kind of fake news environment. Is there anything that Indian journalists in India could do to um, combat this in, in an effective way? Um, you, you know, in India, the media is uh, owned by very big corporations. And um, I, I mean, a lot of my friends who I speak to talk about how stories have been killed and things like that. And, and that's even now spreading to what we thought was the independent media. Um, and so, you know, but journalists there continue to keep putting out those stories and, uh, you know, trying to get the word out. And um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot, um, there are a lot of independent vo websites that are doing a great job at calling out a lot of this and continue to do so. So. I guess just the growing growth of more independent media uh, is like gonna be really good for India, and it's happening. It's happening in a big way. So <laughs> there is hope. <laughs> There's hope. Well, that's a good. That's a good point to end on. Um, yeah. I want to thank all of you. I mean, the fact that all of you are doing the work you're doing, the fact that we're openly discussing these issues. Um, I I also have hope. Uh, you know, I, I see every year. I see. Um, smart, young, ambitious, uh, curious, hardworking journalists uh, wanting to go into this field. The fact that people still want to go into journalism is, is uh, despite the fact that we're the enemy of the people, is uh, is is encouraging. And uh, and I just you know, regardless of the challenges, I, I think that journalists need to do a better job. Um, I think we need to connect with communities, diverse communities, much better. I think we need to diverse to connect with the, our audiences better and earn back the trust of of the of uh, of the public and combat fake news. And I think we could do it. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers.